Um, we're going to be around quite a bit in the, the scriptures today uh, with this series that we're in, in Knowing God. And today we're looking at trusting an unchangeable God in changing times. It has been said that the only constant thing in life is change. Changes can be very difficult. Uh, as I was praying early this morning, I know some of you, but there's many more who are going through a lot of changes in your life. And some of these are welcomed and some are not so welcomed. Think of changes like a death of a parent or of a spouse or of a child, the end of a relationship, the change of moving into a new environment, a new home, a new state, even attending a new church. And the list goes on and on. And change is difficult for many of us. Yet it is constant because we go through one change and then immediately there's another. Alvin and Heidi Toffler wrote Future Shock quite a few years ago. The authors define the term future shock as, quote unquote, too much change in too short of a period of time. And the people living in them can barely keep up with the changes. Let's just think of a few. First of all, personal changes. Just look at your life and go back only 20 years for those of you who can. Now you're going back to 1999. Just look at the changes that have happened in your life in these short 20 years. Some of you have gotten married. Some of you have children that you didn't have 20 years before or grandchildren. Some of you are facing a new unknown in life. A lot of changes in family life. How about health? 20 years ago, you weren't diagnosed with cancer. Now you are. You didn't have cardiac failure. Some of you experienced that. So there's lots of changes personally and even in our spiritual life. There have to be changes. Uh, there's changes today. You won't see them like you're looking back 20 years. No man or woman leaves sitting under the word of God unchanged. Some call that the burden of preaching because the preacher becomes the instrument by giving forth the word of God of either a heart growing harder to God and farther from God or softer. And so he becomes that very instrument. You can't leave unchanged when you hear the word. Think of the world in which we are living. Constantly changing. They say galaxies die and begin. Even the sun is slowly burning out. What's the buzzword in politics today? It's the two words climate change. Our world is constantly changing. The seasons change. We grow old. We die. And from the beginning to the end, we all know change. Think of culture. Forty years ago, I read Whatever Happened to the Human Race by Francis Schaeffer, who I think was the greatest Christian philosopher of the 20th century. And he co-wrote the book with Dr. C. Everett Koop, you remember, was Surgeon General under President Reagan. They wrote about the slippery slope we were on, going down, down, down. And they started talking then about 
Infanticide was just starting in some of the medical community. Euthanasia was being talked about, but not publicly. They prophesied, they predicted, not prophesied in a biblical sense, but they predicted that on this slippery slope, that only six years before the writing of the book, that they witnessed with many of us the law that changed, that legitimized the killing of babies in the womb. And they could see ahead to this slippery slope. You can go back 10 years before 73, 63, when our country and our Supreme Court, they, they made a statement by taking the Bible reading out of the schools. We didn't say it, but it was almost like as a country we said, we will not have God to rule over us any longer. His word does not govern our culture. They quoted Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who about 30 years before said, truth is the majority vote of that nation that could lick all others. In other words, law is only what most of the people think at that moment of history, and there's no higher law. It follows, of course, and we see it happening, that the law then can be changed at any moment to reflect what the majority is currently thinking, or at least those in authority. Books were written simply entitled Situational Ethics, and that's what they're spelling out for us. Truth is not bound by an absolute standard like the Word of God. No, your situation, they say, determines what is truth. And what is truth for you may not be truth for me. So don't judge me just because I don't hold to your standard of truth is the idea of being promoted. Every era has its thinkables. And they have their unthinkables. And as time passes on, the morale, morally unthinkable becomes the thinkable because there's no absolute truth acknowledged. It's what I call spiritual erosion. I marvel, and so do you, with disdain of what's happening to our country. I'm more concerned about what's happening in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sins that were once denounced from the word of God as unacceptable to a Christian life are now openly practiced. There's not even a shame in it. We could go off on a rabbit trail, I won't do that. But it's spiritual erosion. Think about people, people change. Young couples fall in love and before you know it, they're bored with the other person. What do we say? We go before the pastor, the Attorney, whoever it is, well, we outgrew each other. Don't get me started. <laughs> people who are your loyal friends turn on you. Kind people become mean people. Loving people become hateful. Remember Sammy Ball, the great Washington Redskins quarterback in the 70s? As an NFL quarterback, he said, on Monday, you're either in the penthouse or the outhouse. You're as good as your last performance. Things constantly change. Look at the church. Reflect on what it meant to go to church 25 years ago with going to church today. Now, I'm not finding fault, understand. I'm just making an observation. 
Choirs give way to praise worship teams. Organ music replaced by electric keyboards. Hymns give way to contemporary songs. Sermons are often replaced by sermonettes. And the list goes on and on. And for some, those changes can be very difficult. I encourage you to anchor your ministry to unchanging truths and eternal purposes, but be willing to continually adopt how you communicate those truths and purposes without compromising the truth of the Word of God. John Stott, whom I quote quite often, said it correctly in just a very simple sentence. It was really given to preachers, Christian leaders, He says, keep one foot in the word of God and keep your other foot in this contemporary world. What was he saying? Let the Bible be your foundation that governs your life. This is absolute truth. But realize there's a different culture. I look up here and I see an African culture. I've been to many countries in Africa. It's a different way. It's a different culture. You have to adopt to that culture while not changing the message of the word of the Lord. By the way, we've got a a great senior pastor. Man, do we miss him or what? Katie, don't miss him too much. You make me feel bad, okay? (laughs) Not really. We miss him. You know, one of the things I appreciate is he lives that one foot planted in the word of God in the he, he knows this contemporary culture. I am so far out of touch sometimes, I feel like I'm out in left field somewhere. But your elders and your staff, they, they live that. One foot in the word, the other foot in the contemporary culture. The point is everything around us is changing, including ourselves, and we cannot be totally relied upon, but not God. He can be completely trusted no matter what changes come because he does not change. So this morning we're going to focus on a few verses, Psalm 102, 24 to 27, and Hebrews 13, 8 is kind of uh, the launching off pad because in the midst of constant changes in our lives, I believe the one truth that's going to keep our feet on the ground while our mind is in heaven and on spiritual things is the unchanging God in changing times. Or we call it, and my wife does not like this word, God's immutability. She says, Harry, can't you just use a simple word? <laughs> just you. I like the word, he's not changing. Immutability. It sounds like you're in a seminary classroom. We desperately need to understand in the midst of changing times, we have an unchanging God. He's faithful, and he can be trusted, and all the seasons of our lives belong to the sovereign God. Let's look first at the definition of God's immutability. Let's try to give it a a go at it. Psalm 102, verse 24 to 27. Oh my God, I say, take not away, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Verse 26, they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You'll change them like a robe. They'll pass away, but you are the same. Your years have no ends. I just love the words of the psalmist. We've all had garments that wear out. 
some of us men are a little bit slower to throw them in away, and our wives keep saying, when are you going to get rid of that worn-out shirt? And sooner or later, we toss it in the heap. Your robe, you change like a robe. Some of you have stayed in a nicer hotel, and when you go in there, there's a couple of terry cloth robes that you can use in your stay. And you put those on, and you have your morning cup of coffee. Then what do you do after a day or two? You throw the robe in a basket somewhere. That's the way that the psalmist is looking at the immutability of God, his unchangeability, meaning that even that he who created the heavens and the earth, someday it's just going to be like an old garment, and it's going to be tossed away. He doesn't change, but the earth changes, the heavens changes, eras change, and time changes. And when he comes back in his glorious second coming, hallelujah, after the millennial reign of Christ, new heavens, new earth, and new eternity. But God hasn't changed one bit. That doesn't mean he's immobile or inactive, but it does mean that he is never inconsistent or growing or developing. We looked at the eternity of God last week. The eternity of God simply means to us that God has always existed, always will exist. Nothing ever came before him. Nothing will come after him. The immutability of God means that God is always the same in his eternal being, yesterday, today, forever. Hebrews 13.8 says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's immutability. A minute ago we saw how everything around us is changing constantly. But God is the one constant fixed point in a churning and decaying universe for those who truly know him. God alone is immutable, meaning he is unchangeable. Now let's look at the demonstration of God's immutability. We can say, well, so what? I mean, why do I need to know this? Why do I need to appropriate it? When we say that God does not change, we mean he never changes as to two primary elements. As to his person, his his character, his attributes, as to his person, nothing changed, nothing has ever changed. And as to his plan or his purpose, or what some might call his eternal decrees. As to his person, listen to a few of these verses that are on the screen. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above, from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Malachi 3, 6, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob. Put your name in there. Jacob are the elect of God. Israel is the elect nation of God. He chose Israel for his glory. He prayed certain promises, unconditional promises that would not be altered, would not be changed. And though Jacob, the people, had turned on God time and again because of God's immutability, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let that bless your heart. Think of your worst hour in this last month. Think of your darkest moment. 
Think of some words you spoke or attitudes you projected or lust that you gave into or envy or jealousy. Think of your worst that you don't want anyone to know about. And God saw it. But you're not consumed, O Jacob, because God gave you an eternal promise based upon his immutability. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. These verses speak of God's person, that is, who he is, his essential being. For a mortal being to change, and we do, and we are mortal, the change has to either be from better to worse, right? Or from worse to better. We're constantly changing. I mentioned 10 minutes ago that you're not going to sit under a service such as this one and walk out that door unchanged. You'll either be changed for the better, your heart will be softer than the things of God, you'll love him more, or it will be harder. But it's impossible for God to change, for any change in his character would make him less than who God is. Can you imagine God talking about wanting to be a better person for one second? Can you imagine anyone ever saying to God, I hope you grow in the grace and knowledge? It's blasphemous to almost even think such a thought. Why, that would mean that God was less than righteous, holy, or perfect, and therefore sinful. Can you imagine saying that God learned something new today? Ah, I never thought of that. That would mean his knowledge before was imperfect, therefore he was less than omniscient. Arthur Pink wrote correctly, he cannot change for the better, for he's already perfect, and being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Now, if you go back into these days, you'll, you'll see that Greek philosophers talked about their gods being immutable as well which meant they were not only unchangeable, but then that they also had the inability to be affected by anything in any way. So the primary characteristic was described by the Greek word apatheia. Can you think of an English word that comes from apatheia? Of course you can. He's apathetic. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't have any sense of feeling of what's going on. It means a total inability to feel any emotion, whatever. You see, they thought if you had a God who had apa, who, who had feeling and emotion and was not apathetic, then you could control him and manipulate him. The Bible teaches us that God is indeed immutable, but he nevertheless is affected by our responses. A primary example of this, of God feeling emotion deeply was when Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. Some of us have been there. There's a church that's planted there, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. The word there originally means he wailed. There's a sobbing is what we would call it. He was moved by the rejection of his people to him. And his heart went out to them in compassion. How often I would have gathered you to my breast. The same week he displayed righteous anger. 
when he entered the temple where the religious leaders had turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves and you see him going about very angry, whipping, turning over tables, chasing people out of the court. Today he is our great high priest who is sympathetic, touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The immutability of God does not nullify his feelings of compassion towards people, yet as to his person, he does not change. Are you hurting today? Have you had a great loss, great disappointment, a great change? You come and you just have a burden that person around you doesn't know. He knows. He cares. He's our sympathetic High priest who says, I understand, for I too was tested in all points as you, though without sin. We may say with confidence that the immutability of Christ is the same as that of the Heavenly Father, because Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit are co equal persons in the Trinity. Hebrew 1 8 supports this. Listen to it. But of the Son, he, that is God the Father, but of the Son, he says, your throne of God is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness and the scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. Do you realize what we just did? Do you realize we entered into an intimate conversation before heaven and earth were ever created? And we are able to hear the conversation of the Trinity. That the Father looks at his eternal Son and he says, your throne, and notice, the Father calls the Son, your throne, O God, is settled forever and ever. Some of you have come from backgrounds that taught that Jesus was somewhat inferior or less than God the Father. And that's an absolute lie. It's not true. Everything the Father is, the Son is. And everything the Son is, the Holy Spirit is. And one is not superior to the other, though they may function differently in their line of submission. The Father sent the Son, and the Son was submissive to the Father. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, but He says, He won't glorify me, He'll glorify the Son. Verses 10 to 12 of Hebrews 1, the writer ascribes to Christ the work of creating the universe. And you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Saying the same thing. They will perish Earth, heavens, they will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe you roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. Sounds like Psalm 102. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So the sameness of Jesus is the sameness, immutability as God, the eternal God. He's immutable to his person. But notice he's also immutable as to his purposes. 
In other words, God will never change as to the eternal decree that has already been established. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You don't say, I'm going to do this tomorrow, or I'm going to do that tomorrow. You don't know what a day brings forth. Only God can say that. Tomorrow, in the future, I will do this, and it will happen. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should not change his mind, that he should change his mind, has he said, and will he not do it? I love Spurgeon's comment, consider what you owe to his immutability. Though you have changed a thousand times, he has not changed once. God writes with a pen that never blots. Isn't that beautiful? He speaks with a tongue that never slips. What a great God. Altogether so worthy of our worship. He acts with a hand that never fails. Our tongues slip, our hands fail. Now that raises a question in some of our minds. When I say God does not change as to his eternal decree or purposes or plan. Because some of you have been around the scriptures long enough to think, well, don't I remember where it said it repented God that he, or it regretted God that he did this or that. So when we say that God doesn't change, we mean that he never changes as to his person or his purposes, but he may, however, choose to react differently to man's varying responses. Let me just give you three quick examples. God commanded Jonah, and God's missionary heart, as we sang about right before I came up to the pulpit, has always been a missionary heart. He chose Israel for three main reasons. The third reason was to be a witness to the pagan nations around them. An example of this is when he commanded Jonah to announce to Nineveh that they would be destroyed. But at the preaching of Jonah, the whole city repented. They say, theologians and historians say, it was the greatest revival in the history of mankind. The whole city repented, and instead of destroying them, God blessed them. Did God change? No. It was Nineveh that changed. And God responded to the repentance with a blessing which is consistent with his nature. It says in, in Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented, old King James says, repented. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Second example, God looked at the debauchery of the human race in pre-flood civilizations. Just before the flood, Genesis 6.6 says, And the Lord regretted, again, old King James repented. The Lord repented, regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God made man to be blessed and to be a blessing. But Adam's fall turned God's blessing into a curse. God's will and his character were unchanged. He would reward good, he would punish evil. But humanity had changed and God was sorry for what his creatures would suffer in judgment. But Noah and his family found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
Now, when the Bible says God relented or was sorry, it doesn't mean he made a mistake. Usually, if I say to someone, I am sorry, that means I've made a mistake. But that's not what is meant here. The Bible simply expresses in terms we can understand a divine attitude of grief over man's sin. It means God responded to man's iniquity with sorrow and altered his treatment of mankind in accordance with how they are behaving. Let me point out one more historical, uh, historical example. If you have your Bible, uh, it's, first, it's going to be up on the screen, but it's 1 Samuel 15. And many of you uh, know the story uh, somewhat. The chapter reveals, and it can be very confusing, by the way, but the chapter reveals the final straw in the leadership of Saul. One of the great studies is just a study of the leadership style of Saul with King David. Such, such contrasts, especially of things of the heart. To simplify the chapter, God told Saul, do this and do that. We'll just keep it right there. We don't need to go into the details. Saul, I want you to do this. This is a command. Samuel, the prophet, told Saul in verse 23, because you have rejected, Saul disobeyed God. Simple as that. Do this. Saul did that. He didn't do what God... He did it partially, but partial obedience is not obedience. It's true for you. Partial obedience to the Lordship of Christ is not obedience in the biblical sense. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now look at verse 11. God says, I regret, I repent. I regret that I have made Saul king. Look at verse 34 at the bottom. And, uh, the, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now I think the matter is clarified for us in verse 29 on the screen where it says this. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Those are the same words used every time. Regret, 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 repent, repent, repent. The Lord, God of Israel, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Very interesting statement. What are we to make of this? Here's my suggestion. When the writer says that God repented or regretted or changed his mind about making Saul king, the writer realized that he had said something very liable, though correct, could be misunderstood. So I think verse 29 by the Holy Spirit is added to the writer to limit and clarify what he said. How does he do that? He does it with the words, for he is not a man that he should have regret, change his mind, repent. In other words, God's changes are not like a man's changes. Changing for God is not the kind of changing a human mind would do. A man can look with joy on a person and on a situation one day, and then the very next day, look with disapproval on that person and the new situation that faces him that day. So can God. He rejoices over a person's behavior today, but he may grieve over your behavior tomorrow. You agree with that, don't you? You can grieve him. You can bring him joy today, but tomorrow you can grieve the Holy Spirit. So his mind changes. So what's the difference? Man brings to every situation limitations that God does not bring. 
The most relevant one is that man brings finiteness and what? Lack of knowledge. The difference is that God is not ignorant of the behavior that you will do tomorrow. He knows what it will be. And he knows how he will respond. He knows that his response to your future behavior will be different from his response to your present behavior. His change of mind is not based on ignorance. It is foreknown. Indeed, it is planned unlike man's. Now, remember what we said two weeks ago on the sovereignty of God. Foreknowledge is not simply foreknowledge, knowing something ahead of time. That's omniscience. We'll talk about that in another Sunday. Foreknowledge is not only knowing something ahead, but it is a plan, a purpose that God has that he will execute. He knows everything of how responses will be, and his whole eternal decree and sovereign plan for humanity and for the world and forever has already been decided in eternity past. You say, explain it. What are you, nuts? God has never had an oops moment. Remember that. He's never once said, oh, I didn't know Saul was going to do that. How could mankind turn on me like that? He's never been surprised by you either. But his eternal purposes will be carried out. So let's close the message. The decisions in light of God's immutability. Two quick things here. For the believer, we need to be comforted that God's love for us is eternal, infinite, and unchanging. Paul said in Romans, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I may not love him all the time, but that does not change his love for me. It means his forgiveness, love, and salvation are immutable. Paul says to Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That brings security and rest to the soul. It's a reminder of his amazing grace. I was talking to a wonderful Christian woman on July 4th, and we were discussing grace, and she shared a powerful sentence with me that a I asked permission to share this morning and I received it. Because usually we don't think much about grace in our normal Christian life if things are just kind of doing all right. We're not really just living and basking in the grace of God, thinking about it, how wonderful it is. But things go south, we're quick to appropriate God's grace and mercy. And she said this, and it was a, a woman that shared this with her. It's not a little mud puddle of grace you are standing in. Catch this. But even on your best day, you're drowning in a vast ocean with wave after wave of grace. I just love that. And I had a woman teach me that. A young lady. But why didn't I think of that 50 years ago? Takes me back to Isaiah, but we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses. Let it sink in. When you are at your best, your righteousnesses are as filthy 
garments to God. What in the world must I be like most of the time? Talk about grace. Let me skip a couple things here for sake of time. Trust is fundamental to our faith. Can we trust there is a loving, sovereign, eternal, and immutable God who longs to lead us as the great shepherd of the sheep? Keeping faith in a loving God when everything is changing around us isn't easy. You will not make it unless your mind is immersed in the word of God every day. You're not going to make it. I don't mean make it to heaven. I mean, you're not going to have a life that magnifies God Almighty unless you learn to think like God thinks. And the only way you learn to think like God thinks is to take God's word into your mind and heart. Meditate on it, memorize it, think of it daily. Every moment you're living in light of his grace and the knowledge of his word. God's immutability ought to challenge us to trust him for every change that comes to our lives as we walk by faith in the sphere of his amazing grace. What's the closing thought for the person that might be here today who has never come to saving faith in Christ? What is my word to you who you're sitting there, maybe you've been thinking about it, maybe you haven't thought about it, but you're thinking about it this morning, and you're going to die someday. I know you're young, and it seems long you're going to die someday. And I know you're thinking, well, what you don't know is you may die tomorrow. Tragedy hits all the time. While the mutability of God brings joy to the heart of the believer, it ought to strike fear and terror in the heart of every unbeliever. For an unbeliever, the knowledge that God does not change can be terrifying. God has said that the soul that sins will die. He will not alter his decree. His word says the wages of sin is death, and that is just as true at the final judgment as it was when it was written. And even though God is grieved and aches and weeps over man's rejection of him, God will never soften his position on sin, for his holiness is unchanging. No one needs to remain in their sinful state. Christ is immutable. And today, just like 2,000 years ago, with outstretched arms, he says, Come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy burden, and I will give you rest. The God who is unchanging offers the sinner his unconditional love and forgiveness at this very moment through the incredible gift of his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus. Since God is unchangeable, then all change must be on our part. He enables us as believers to change by his power today. He enables unbelievers to come to his throne of grace today and be born again, whereby old things will start passing away and all things will start becoming new. So may the unchangeable God be pleased to bring many changes in our midst this day. Horatius Bonar wrote, Our changing years affect not him with whom one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We live in a world that is constantly changing, but I pray our feet will be on the solid rock and stayed upon the immutable God with whom is no 
change, no variableness, no shadow of turning. Would you bow with me in prayer?